Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Lords of Limited. My name is Ben Warney, and joining me on the line, as always, is Ethan Sachs. Ethan, I have one question for you. What does it cost to activate Boast on Target Lord of Limited? Ooh, got him. We are the champions, my friend. Ben, we did it. <laughs> we did it. Unseated the Limited Resources team. Oh, boy. It was a rough go there. So for anyone who did not follow along, on Friday, January 29th, we faced off against Team Resources for our our, our grudge match, rematch, whatever. I don't know what the, the correct sports term is, but we got to face off against them in a team draft with you, me, and Alex Nikolic, aka Quarter Calls. And we got there. <laughs> but it was a rocky start in the first round. Both Alex and I lost our, our first games. And I was watching Ben's match against Marshall. And in game three, he was like, oh, hey, does anyone know how uh, Alex and Ethan did? And I was like, oh, no, he doesn't know yet that he like kind of really needs to win this match. Yeah, I felt the pressure on. It's kind of like if you've never been on a sports team or something like tennis, like you're if you're the last match going, like you play to seven, right? There's singles and doubles or you play to five. Depends on the state. It's different. So like some states you play to five, three singles, two doubles. And if you're the last match going, like everyone is watching you and you know you need to win your match but it also if you win your match then like the team wins the match it's a lot of pressure yeah yeah well but you you pulled it out and then we swept round two and then i was the first to a w against lsv in round three so we we redeemed ourselves ben we got ourselves back on the board with a win we did there were some epic games too my games against marshall were insane yeah there's that really great clip of you that channel fireball uh retweeted or tweeted out that uh has you going this these games are so great i don't even care who wins or loses <laughs> that's true definitely felt that way so if you missed any of that you can go check it out on all six players respective vods i assume they'll, they'll all be there um for your viewing pleasure and you can you know watch the draft go around the table we also did a little post-mortem but because of the the weird way my twitch is currently set up the dmca thing it muted ben's audio so you unfortunately don't get to hear our conversation on the vod so you had to be there live to get that back and forth and uh this is like a sweet a little perk for our patrons, which will be a nice segue to our our chat about the Patreon page. Our patrons got access to a little prep video that you, me, and Alex did. We hopped on a call about an hour before the tournament just to like talk our talk strategy and also look at the rares and make sure we were on the same page about like which ones we thought were okay to pass and which ones were not okay to pass that sort of thing yeah spoiler furious retribution was on the list of no passes oh yeah that's on the no pass zone for sure which i did end up getting back three pick two that was so good all right yeah i'm, I'm very very hyped after that and uh i'm so hyped to get to talk to you about this format ben it is insanely complex as as promised, with 2,000 more words than any other set in uh, Magic's history, this format is got a lot going on. Holy cow, does it? Yeah. Okay, so we've got a lot to talk about here, so we'll get through our, our brief housekeeping stuff here. First things first, as I alluded to, the Patreon page, patreon.com slash lordsoflimited is where you can go to give back to the show if you so choose. But as we say each and every week, the Discord is the place to be for limited tech support. And it's the place to be to break a format wide open. I got to say, I was pouring over the best of three and best of one trophy section of the Kaldheim uh, category of the Discord. Yeah, it is awesome. You can just see hundreds of trophies there already. Yeah, so it's a, an incredibly active community and incredibly 
helpful community. I think we've not said this in a while, but like, you know, it's sort of something that feels like it gets unwieldy perhaps as it grows, but it really hasn't. Like as our community has grown and grown and grown each week, as you're going to hear, we're going to welcome a whole ton of people to the fold in, in just a second. But each week as it grows, it feels like it just gets stronger and stronger. Yeah, hundred percent. I could not agree more. All right, Ben. So I'm going to ask you to welcome our new patrons to the fold this week. And we are welcoming Arpeggio, Felix, Callum, Jacob, Adrian D, Evan, Thomas, Tillman, Greg, Runar, Guilherme, Michael S, Eric, Michael D, Sage, Avery, Monger, Alexander, Mark F, Neil, Matthew B, Momo, Zolar Prime, Matthew P, Alex, Sebastian D, Jonathan, Christian, Jason, Sebastian S, Drew, Cesar, Alan, Stefan, Nicholas, Kyle, Nate, Mati, Joris, Stephen, Jens, Trevor, Tony, Freddie, James, and Wolfgang. I'm going to let you do it, Ben. Holy patrons, Batman. Yeah. I somehow ended up with all the initials in that list there, too. I know. Yeah, you got all the all the double names this time around. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. We cannot say how much we appreciate your support. And Ben, we are dangerously close to our next stretch goal for the podcast, which is a bonus episode free of charge to our patrons each month. Yeah, I am very excited to cross that off the bucket list and start recording that with you. And I think that's going to give us a lot of avenues to explore things that are outside of the normal rotation of content that we're doing for each format. Yeah, I am looking forward to that too. I think we can afford ourselves to, you know, get out of our streamlined week by week updates of the format stuff and maybe, you know, focus. we, we both like Cube a lot, maybe focus on that, get some more guests on here um, to talk about maybe some, some less, you know, week to week stuff and more broad things. I know we wanted to talk to some streamers as well. So I, I'm excited to get that additional content on the board. In addition to the Patreon, podcast is also brought to you in part by Channel Fireball, channelfireball.com, best place to go for anything you need magic related. We've got some big stuff coming up with CFB, and top of the heap is the Kaldheim release party. That's coming up on February 6th, and by the time this podcast comes out, I think the deadline will have passed to place an order for a pre-release kit with them, but that doesn't mean that you can't participate. If you get a pre-release kit or six packs or whatever from your LGS, I think you can also sign up as well. Don't quote me on that. Sorry, Gabby, if that's wrong, but (laughs) (laughs) I'm pretty sure that's the case. And it's also going to feature a deck building room with you and I giving deck building advice in their Discord. So the whole thing is going to be run through their Discord. And from 10 to 12 a.m. Pacific time, you and I are going to be in that room giving deck building advice. And I think we're also going to be participating after that's over and jamming some games of Sealed against other folks. So anyone's welcome to come give or get deck building advice in there, but we're definitely going to be in there early and the room's going to stay open for the duration of the event and then you'll be able to play against other people via their discord and spell table and you know just post pictures of your sweet pools whatever you know yeah i've got my pre-release pack courtesy of channel fireball for saturday's event sitting next to me on this desk and it is taking everything in my power to not open these boosters right now <laughs> look at that willpower i know but i'm, I'm gonna try and set up a little spell table thing i'm excited to you know, I, I don't think I've played with paper magic cards like since GP New Jersey, it feels like. That is probably true for me as well. I was wondering how you rig up your camera. So we'll have to reach out to some folks about that. Yeah. Well, I think you can use your phone. So you can, I think you can just like try and rig your phone on something and, and then it'll connect that way. Does it work with my iPhone 5S still? Oh my God, Ben. <laughs> oh my God. You know, I have no idea. I have no idea. Did you steal is that, that from like, the model? Smithsonian? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, also going over at CFB is Box Breaks, which is pretty sweet. I just watched last night. They have a, a Twitch channel now, twitch.tv slash CFB Box Breaks or something like that. 
um, where you can sign up and, you know, purchase part of a box, maybe a color or something like that. Um, whatever it is that you're interested in from that box, there's different ways to uh, purchase part of it. And I watched them crack a revised starter deck and somebody was responsible for a volcanic island. So somebody's going to get that volcanic island. Super Ooh, sweet. Ooh, that is awesome. Yeah, yeah. I, I was watching that the other night, watching uh, Mashi with his his mask on, opening some packs. It was pretty sweet. Yeah, very cool. So if that's your thing, check that out over at Channel Fireball as well. And when you do anything over at Channel Fireball, make sure you use code LOL, all caps, when you check out to let them know that we sent you there. And we would really, really, really appreciate it. All right, let's let's dive into our, our usual slew of questions here and then some more format specific stuff and then some cards that have impressed or underimpressed us here. But some big picture questions, perhaps perhaps even outdated, Ben. Is this a Prince or a Popper format? So for folks who are not familiar with that terminology, a Prince format is one dictated by higher rarity cards, rares mostly, uncommon sometimes, or Popper format is one dictated by the commons. Yeah, I think my personal answer to this, and I think we differ here a little bit, is popper i think there are decks that exist at common that really can compete but i'd qualify that with there are some really 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 busted rares and there are some really strong uncommons and my default is to let those rares and uncommons guide me where i'm supposed to go and then filling in the deck with commons and i do think if you're filling in the deck with the right commons the commons are a big part of your deck still yeah the the commons and this is a a spoiler for next week i think we are going to return to our commons in context style episode that we did for theros beyond death just because i do think the commons in this set are so contextual you know beyond the top five or six uh, I think it's really about figuring out where you want to take them and where they're going to be maximized, like what archetypes or colors or color pairs they're best in. So, you know, I've been saying like sort of jokingly sort of clickbaity that this is a format where the commons don't matter or the commons are all bad or, or whatever. And that's not quite true, right? Like a- almost all of the commons have a home and are playable. But I think this is definitely a Prince format in my mind because of how few commons stand out. Um, and how much I'm I'm not hoping to end a draft where I'm like, okay, I, this this deck is just largely full of of commons here and the synergies there. And I, I think those are mostly going to be the, the, the two decks that I think of immediately when I think of a popper deck are red, white and red, black. Yeah, I think so for sure. And I think red, blue falls into that category as well. Red commons and blues commons are super, super deep. And I think red, blue is a deck that exists largely at common and uncommon doesn't rely on rares, that sort of thing. Yeah. And almost, you know, if you're thinking about it as princely, it'd almost be the good uncommons that are princely. But to me, you know, so Theros Beyond Death, I thought was a super prince format because I felt like if I didn't have a good rare or a good uncommon, that I couldn't compete and that those cards were so few and far between as well. Like that there was just a gigantic gap. Yes. To me, to me, there's a lot of stuff that feels very, very, very powerful in call time. So I've not had trouble getting good cards to put in my deck. But I also think along the popper side of things, you and I have not drafted the aggro decks a ton yet. Mm-hmm. I have not done it at all yet. I think you've done it maybe once. I did it once, but I had like four rares in it. Like that, that was, <laughs> it was a very, yeah, it was a, a very unique version of that deck. I don't think it's the sort of aggro deck that, you know, maybe Alex is finding draft in and draft out. Sure. And I think we'll talk about how to get into those decks as soon as we figure out how to get into those decks. But it's been difficult if you're taking the Raleigh powerful cards, because a lot of the powerful cards do go in the snow decks quite a bit. Right. Yeah. Next up. 
we always talk about the number of lands. So how many lands have you been playing? So because I've been primarily playing these like snow piles, I've been running 18 lands in non-aggressive decks and usually no less than 17, even when I feel like I've got a good like, you know, streamlined black, white double spell deck or whatever. Uh, I think the spell lands, you know, if you end up with one of those in your color pair, I think that means you probably don't want to run fewer than 17 lands because you can count that as a spell. You know, we, we did see floating around on Twitter and in the Lords Limited Discord, Ryan Sachs had a mono white deck on MTGO with 13 lands in it. That was pretty crazy with a bunch of those uh, Raptors on turn one. I think that's the exception of the rule, though. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think that that deck's going to come together that much. Um, I think spell lands, splashing, and a lot of two for ones leads me to want more lands in the format. So that's why I've been running mostly 18. Right. There's a lot of good card draw. You know, behold the multiverse. Um, There's the Serulf's Packmate, the Wolf. There's a lot of ways to just keep generating cards. I have not ever found myself flooding in the decks I've been playing. Right. And that's the other thing about snow is that there's that's where so many mana sinks exist. And so or, you you know, you have the stupid hawk looter or something or you're so heavy snow that frost auger is drawing you more cards like there are places to put your snow mana late in the game as well. Or, or God forbid, you have Svella floating around if you're Ben. Right. And speaking of those uncommon lands, some of them activate at sorcery speed, but some mm-hmm. of them activate at instant speed. And there are onboard tricks in a way that way. Like I've already messed up games just not seeing one of my opponent's uncommon lands and or knowing that you could do it at instant speed so make sure you keep an eye out for that when you're playing games yeah i have found that on arena where you and i have both exclusively played so far that especially because a lot of those spell lands are played in snow decks that it's really hard like i have to make sure i'm looking at my opponent's lands because i have been surprised like oh you just get to clone your creature with a plus one plus one counter i just thought that was a snow island or whatever you know i feel like i don't see them because they're so so tiny um what about the format speed where are you at there I, i would say the same thing we always say you need to affect the board early, but it's not blazing fast in my mind. And if you get in a snow mirror match, it is dirtily as all get out. Those games are a grind. Yeah, I found even as the aggro player with my one red white deck so far or against aggro decks, and perhaps this is because I play decks that want to go to the long game, just like games are grindy even then. I think you, I think the traditional like, you know, hyper aggro decks or just like traditional curve out decks can get stopped and then i think you've got to have a plan for the mid to late game in in some respect yeah definitely the other thing i was thinking about when we were talking about format speed just now and lands sequencing your lands is hard in this format and can be really punishing like something as simple as there are a lot of tap lands right and i punted in the the lords versus resources showdown against marshall with a Cerulef's Packmate, I played my basic and then, you know, cast my Cerulef's Packmate off of Fortel and I hit a tap land that I could have played. So I was playing off curve, you know, by one turn unnecessarily because I didn't sequence my lands or sequence my turn correctly as well. There's a lot of depth to this format. Especially in those snow decks, you're going to have those decision points. You know, if you have Binding the Old Gods or if you have the uh, Spirit of the Alder Guard, if you have ways to search up snow lands or, you know, forests, and then you can search up your, your dual lands that are forests with Binding, then you have these other decisions of like, okay, what maybe do I need this double color? Do I need this splash? Is this my fourth or fifth color to maybe act a path of the world tree in a few turns like there are a lot of things to consider in those decks i found myself roping quite a bit so far yeah 
But back to the aggro decks, I do think they're there. I do think they exist, and I do think they're good. I, you and I just don't have a ton of experience with them yet. Snow is definitely our drafting proclivity for sure. Mm-hmm. But I do think as people, you know, we're going to talk about Snow. I know Sam Black's doing a drafting archetypes episode on Snow. As more people figure out how to draft Snow and pick the Snow lands appropriately highly, that deck's definitely going to get worse and harder to get into. And then I think those aggro decks are really going to have a chance to shine for sure. Yeah, yeah. So we'll be on the lookout for that. And I think I'm definitely going to be sad once I I start seeing those snowlands disappear earlier and earlier. But it feels to me almost, you know, I've equated snowlands to one mana cyclers. And it feels like snow is close to the power level of the cycling deck when you get the snow deck and you don't have to fight with other people over the snowlands. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you know, while while the snow deck's there, definitely want to take advantage of it. For sure. And we're part of the now we're just but we're like shooting ourselves in the foot here, Ben, giving away all the <laughs> I know. Yeah, we're blowing it on the podcast. Yeah. All right. So uh, what about yeah, I got a lot of questions this week on stream. What about main decking, invoke the divine or broken wings? These like disenchant or artifact blow up effects. I think it's totally fine. You're likely to find a target. There's a lot of good artifacts and enchantments running around as well as flyers for broken wings. I don't know if I'd go so far as uh, invoke the divine, but broken wings, I think I would be totally happy to main deck and have done it so already. Yeah, okay, that makes sense. Yeah, I think folks see sagas floating around and are like, oh, everyone's gonna have enchantments. But like sagas are really not the thing you want to be blowing up, especially in this set, because so many of the sagas, their most impactful chapter is the first chapter. Right. But there's like the gods that have the artifact on the back. Yeah, that's there's true. There's equipment running around. There's there's just good stuff. Yeah. The, the the amount of equipment aura stuff, I think, makes it so you'll you'll probably find targets. But yeah, I'm not quite on that train, but I could see broken wings and green decks for sure. Next up, we've got best decks. What have been the best decks so far in your experience? Well, I really like blue green snow or really any sort of Sultai based blue green or black based snow deck, any of those combos. Um, But I think blue green is the best home for that. I have really liked blue white foretell. I think red black is the best of the aggro decks. I have not played it yet, but I have seen a lot of really good red black decks. Uh, Blue black as just value, um, maybe with a snow sub theme. And I think blue red, which has a lot of flavors. You know, you talked about there being a really good version at common and i think i see that now um it can be controlling it can be tempo aggro it can be like a theris beyond death style deck with a bunch of behold the multiverses and seize the spoils and bombs like i played that version so i I like blue red's flexibility a lot too right and it's like got a dusting of snow usually for your frostbites and your berg striders and things like that exactly I've been super impressed with snow in general. I think red green also can be a base for snow. And I'm I'm shocked that you are limiting snow to two colors because it's usually four colors pile, sometimes with sketchy mana. You got to have a base two colors. At least that's what we have to uh, profess on the podcast. Do as we say, <laughs> not as we do. Because we're going to like, if we do that, I mean, we know otherwise we're going to see this no matter what, but like just the, the amount of deck techs we're going to see or, or decks in the discord that we're going to see or on Twitter are going to have sketchy mana bases. So I think you got to think about it being base two colors sure that is the, that is the appropriate thing to do yeah <laughs> i've also been pretty impressed with black green snow as well mm. as a base i think anything that's not white you know you can make a base in there the most common three are black green green blue i think and green red yeah i agree with that and i i think you know we're, we're sort of talking about everything but white here and this sort of bleeds into our next point in the show notes of ranking the colors and you and i have sort of a different order blue being the best 
is what we agree on. And then a, a mix of the uh, Jund colors in the middle. And then I think we're both on white being the worst color at the moment. Yeah, I think it just not getting to do anything with snow is a significant disadvantage because all those other colors get to do things with snow. And they also get to do other sweet stuff as well. Right. It feels a little similar to how white was left out of energy in Kaladesh Remastered. And that made it feel less flexible to me in that format. I know you were you were a pretty big fan of white in that set, but white felt awkward to me in terms of not being able to play well with energy. And that's sort of how I feel in this set with it not playing well with snow. Right. But I think if you're wanting to be aggressive, white certainly does that very well. You know, green, white, green, red both very strong aggressive decks, white black with the double spell action can curve out super nastily as well. Yeah. And I have blue white as one of the top tier decks. I think blue white foretell is very, very good, but it's a control deck. All right. So what have you been just as far as drafts go? Have you been approaching the format drafting that sort of stuff? Um, Well, so as we alluded to earlier, the commons are incredibly contextual beyond the top five or six, if we're including Shimmer Drift Veil, which is the ETB tap snow land, you choose a color and then it taps for that color. I find all the commons to be role players or replaceables, perhaps the exception of a few cards like the value boast three twos like Horizon Seeker in green, which fetches up a basic land and to scary Firewalker, which is the like pay one exile top card of your library you can play at this turn. Um, you know, looking for those value cards, the two for one cards, because I think this format is a lot about value and two for ones. Um, but yeah, the, the commons are incredibly contextual. And so just recognizing that, like, I can't tell you how many times I've looked at even pack one pick two and been like, ah, none of these cards matter. Not that none of them matter, but just like nothing is a pull into anything. The packs can be weak or flat in that sense. Almost that the fact that if you have a rare that pushes you in a direction, you can look at the pack and say, none of these commons go well with my rare or none of these yeah. commons support my rare. Not necessarily that they're not good, but this is incentivizing me to do this style of deck and none of these commons want to go in that color pair or that deck. Yeah. So as a result of that flat power level or you know, not feeling like something supports my initial start, because I do think you know, uh, conversely, I'm usually pretty happy with my pack one, pick one. Like it's either going to be a good rare, a good uncommon, or one of the like really good commons that we've identified, like behold the multiverse or pack mate or demon bolt, whatever. Yeah. That's what I was going to say. You listed those top five commons, rattle them off for us, baby. Okay. So I think in this order for me, Behold the Multiverse 1, Serral's Packmate 2, Demon Bolt 3, though I, I don't know if if I was faced with like, I feel confident about Behold 1. If I was faced with Wolf versus Demon Bolt, I would have to really put my money where my mouth is. But in my head, I think that that card is better than Demon Bolt, uh, then Frostbite, then Feed the Serpent, though I'm not quite sure about those last two. But those are the top five. So like the premium three removal spells in the format at common and the two uh, really good two for one foretell cards. Sure, absolutely. And I think that pick of Demon Bolt versus Cerule's Packmate, it's close. And you already, by taking one of those two cards, get to have a fairly large say in where you end up in the draft, right? If you take Swords yeah. Packmate, the likelihood that you're going to be Snow is way higher. If you take Demon Bolt, the likelihood that you're not going to be Snow, I think, is higher. So I, I want to talk about Packmate for a second because, one, I think you and I are higher on it than perhaps the rest of the world. And two, and I'm not trying to like blow up your spot here, but you left it out of your top three commons last week and like very quickly came up on it. So I want to try and uh, unlock why 
this is better than Jiraga Visionary, right? Right. Why does the additional toughness and foretell and the context of the set make this card so good? Yeah, there's several things going on. The first time my opponent did it, I was like, oh, I was wrong about that card. Okay. <laughs> Isn't that crazy so, how that happens? Like just as soon as you see it in play, you're like, ah, I get it now. Yeah. So at the fact that you can foretell it on turn two, if you don't have a two drop, which is frequently the case with these snow decks that they're maybe light on twos as well, which is another reason that card's great. But it's totally fine in the format to go for Tell Cerule's Pac-Man on two and then cast it on turn three and play a tap land or something like that with it. And then you're in business and you've got a body that blocks well or even is bigger than your opponent's stuff and brawls. Like it, it bricks the aggro decks and it gives you card advantage against the control decks. It lines up well against every deck in the format and is very efficient from a variety of different mana perspectives. My brother said this to me in my Twitch chat. He was like, it's a 3-3 Elvish Visionary. And when he said that, it kind of blew my mind. That's a one on the green, one, one ETBs draws a card. And I was like, oh, that kind of is what this card is. Yeah, it's really good. And I think the other thing that is interesting to me is going into the format. I think people had Augury Raven and Srulf's Packmate as similar power leveled cards because they're both four drops and they both have the Fertel for two. And it is not close to close. Packmate is so much better than Augury Raven. Yeah, I mean, you can hear Augury Raven is not in that list of commons that we feel like are significantly above the rest. Yeah, so I think that's interesting as well. Yeah, so back to you know how we're approaching the format. My particular stance or my particular approach right now is aggressively taking Snowlands because of this. Like I very often found myself, I take a strong card, pack one, pick one, see the next pack, not having anything that pulls me in a direction, but there's a snow land there. And so I go, okay, I'm going to take that. I feel like it's easy to do. I feel like it's easy to then end up with half or more than half of the snow lands in pack one if I'm aggressively taking them and plant my flag as that deck. And especially if I'm starting with a strong black, green, or blue card, I just am happy to do that because those are the colors where I'm going to you know, reap those rewards the most down the line of having a good snow mana base. Right. And we should talk about Snowlands for a second. So Snowlands are the key to making the snow deck work, right? You need to end up with at least, you know, six or so, I think, if you're going to be a heavier snow deck, preferably with ways to search them up. And I think you'd like to be more in the eight, nine, ten range. Right. I've been saying, I think for the heavy snow decks, you want half your lands to be Snowlands. So if you can end up with eight to nine, and I guess, you know, you can count glittering frost as a snow land because it turns your land into a snow land or you could count you know ways to search up lands as additional snow lands too um but a lot of the cards especially at common and we're, we're, we'll get to the snow deck in just a second um but a lot of the cards that, that are payoffs for it care about having multiple snow activations or care about you just actually having snow lands so they really are the key to the deck they're the foundation for the rest of the stuff you get to do and as a result you're going to just have to take them highly especially as people start to catch on right so think about cycling and think about wanting to end up with eight to 10 one mana cyclers it's it's the same deal for snow lands and the snow deck and the other thing that you accomplish by taking the snow lands aggressively in pack one is theoretically you're sending signals to your neighbor to hey stay out of snow you know you and i are drafting snow because that's not happening to us. And I think if people start taking the Snowlands appropriately highly, you and I will end up in snow less. Yes. Taking those Snowlands highly is going to mean you're going to have to make some tough decisions. I I did this, I think, on day one or or maybe even day zero. Um, I took a Snowland in pack two over Poison the Cup um, because I already had two of the Priests of the Forgotten Gods. And I just felt like 
Yeah, this is a worse card, obviously. And Poison the Cup is just intrinsically powerful. That's the uncommon one. Black, black, blow up a creature with foretell one in a black. And if you foretell it, you scry to like one of the best uncommons out there. But like taking Snowlands is just going to not only make the picks I already have better, but it makes all of these future picks that I want to take better as well. Right. And it lets other people know, hey, I can't draft snow. And then theoretically, you start to get good cards late, like Ice Hydro. That's the two and a green, two, three that you can pay snow, snow to give it plus two, plus oh, and indestructible. That card is an absolute monster in a heavy snow deck. Now, if you're not a heavy snow deck, it's not a great card in your deck. So that's one of the advantages of cutting snow basics. Right. So many of the snow payoffs require you to have a critical mass of snow permanence. And there's these three common payoffs that we're alluding to. We've talked about Priest of the Haunted Edge as the 04 that at sorcery speed, you can tap sack to give a creature minus X minus X, where X is the number of snow lands you have. Ice Hide Troll is great. And Sculptor of Winter wants you to have snow lands as well as a, as a good mana dork. And so you have those three at common. And then that's not even counting all of the good uncommon or rare payoffs you can get. It's, it's rare that you get to signal other people at the table what you're doing in draft. And taking Snowlands highly is one of the ways you get to do that. Right. And it's even better than taking Gates, right? Because Gates were just duels and like yeah. frequently decks wanted to be, you know, I've heard people trying to make that analogy. And it's just different than that to me because, you know, those Gates would go in, people wanted to be three colors in that format or they wanted a duel that's on color for their colors. And it's going to happen here as well, but it wasn't happening in pack one quite so much. And the Gates deck was one multicolor mess. Snow is more than that. It's It's different in my head. Yeah, for sure. I think you're, I mean, it's not as powerful as the cycling deck or as busted as the cycling deck, but I think that sort of trusting the process thing of like just taking those one mana cyclers super highly and being like, look, all I need to do is get a couple things that care about cycling. And even at common, those exist. Like I can get a prickly marmoset or I can get a snare tactician and I'm going to be off to the races. I think that's similar here with taking Snowlands. Right. I mean, and then if you do that, it's not uncommon in pack three to get significantly hooked up if you stayed the course. Mm -hmm. And even if it felt like you were competing, sometimes people get scared and they jump ship. And I think once you start doing the Snowland thing, you just need to be brave and you need to see it through. <laughs> yeah, I, I totally agree. Yeah, pack three is usually where it, where it all comes together. And it's not uncommon. I know people are like hot and bothered about Ice Hide Troll and I, it's a very powerful card in the snow deck snow snow is no small feat to be able to cast right that's a that's a double splash in a sense if you're not taking the snowland super highly you know and so it's not uncommon to see ice high troll wheel in pack three for you in the in these style of decks right and we should say not all snowlands are created equal right the blue green snow duel is very good the black green snow duel is very good and then snow forest snow island snow mountain basically anything that's white gets a bump down. Yes. And even even snow mountain and snow plains, I think, get mm -hmm. a bump down. So when we're talking about taking them aggressively, you know, pack one, pick three, if you see a snow plains, even if you think you're going to be snow, you should probably pass that because it's not likely to be great in your deck. Yeah, that's a that's a really, really good point to make. And at some point, if you don't have a snow forest or a snow island, being able to search up untapped basics that are snow is also pretty critical to the snow decks. So you should be willing to pick them super highly in pack three if you don't have one yet. Yeah. So another important thing to note, if we're talking about you know going all in on snow, if picks four through eight, you see a run of packs where the snow land doesn't exist. Like sometimes you'll see it missing in pack four, and that makes me a little nervous. Not ready to jump ship just yet because maybe someone just snapped up a duel for what they think their colors are or whatever. And then you'll see snow basic, snow basic again. But if you're seeing them missing in a string of pick four through eight, you got to get off it or at least 
do a backdoor into what Ben has been talking about a lot to me is these like snow packages. Yeah. And I think you don't necessarily need to have a critical mass of snow lands if you have a snow package, but usually it takes a glittering frost or a replicating ring and you end up with whatever, four, five, six snow lands. And you've got cards like Boreal Outrider. Like there are some snow rewards or reasons that don't require, you know, 10 snow lands or 10 snow sources in your deck. Boreal Outrider is great. If you get a way to search up your snow forest and you have a bunch of green creatures in your deck, Boreal Outrider is insane. You don't need to be full on snow. Yeah. And then a, a tiny note here that it is not free to put snow lands in your deck. I have seen people wanting, you know, me to just run snow planes in a in a white black deck with snow, snow payoffs just to like, you know, bluff some snow stuff or whatever. It's not worth it. No one's going to care about that. And there are some slight ways to punish that. Like on day one, I faced the Omen Keel, which is the uh, flip side of one of the gods. And it's a 3-3 a three, three vehicle with crew one. And if it hits you, um, they look at the top three cards and exile any number of lands that you have. So your opponent can just like steal snow lands and a blue deck is going to care about snow lands. So that's an example of it's a, a corner case, but that can come up and there's never any value to just running additional snow lands in your deck. And, you know, Ethan and I are all hot and bothered about snow right now, but I would caution you if you don't have good fundamentals on building multicolor mana bases and like janky multicolor decks snow tests a lot of that in your <laughs> magic repertoire it really does like i've had to go pretty creative and pretty deep in some of my snow decks so i think if that's not you it's certainly fine to just say you know i'm gonna draft an aggro deck and i'm gonna smash these players that are derping around with their mana bases as well mm -hmm. so i just want to throw that out there as well just because ethan and i are saying snow is great i don't think it's necessarily right for everyone and i assume we will do an episode at some point where we really try to lay it out and teach you how to do the things. Yeah, and that'll probably be then too late and everyone will have caught on and <laughs> you can't get that deck to come together, but you can right now. Some other general thoughts about the format. I, I have found my creature count to be super important, right? We, we noticed this in the crash course that the general creature count in the format is low thanks to the cycle of sagas that uncommon, the cycle of lands that uncommon. And lots of cards want you to have disposable bodies or care about creatures in your graveyard. If you have something like a 10 to 12 creature count range, which I think is not uncommon for control decks in the format, whether that's your foretell decks or your multicolor snow decks, you can't play a card like Trickster God's Heist. That's the uncommon blue-black saga where chapter one wants you to exchange control of two creatures. You can't play Carter's Vicious Return. Chapter one of that Black Red Saga wants you to sacrifice a creature. You can't play Way Down, which wants you to have a creature in your graveyard to actually be able to cast it. You can't expect to get bonuses from your exile creature effects. Raise the Draugr is super awkward. The, the double raise dead if they share a type. Like You just really have to be mindful of your creature count as you're drafting and what that's going to do to the value of these you know, on face value, powerful cards. Right. And there also are a cycle of cards that care about exiling a creature card from your graveyard. And if you only have 10 to 12 creatures in your deck and you have multiple of those cards that want to exile a creature, there's some real tension there in having enough creatures in your graveyard or when your creatures hit the graveyard as well. Because typically these low creature decks are also controlling decks. So you're not necessarily trading creatures off. So you're not always going to have a creature in the bin to exile for those type of effects as well. I found some tension there as well. Yeah, could not agree more. The other thing is just making sure your creature count is high enough in your aggro decks, right? Something like Red White really wants you to run equipment and enhancements. But also, you know, you're going to play your Demon Bolts and your Bound in Gold too. So you want to be careful to not end up in a spot, you know, where you've got 12 creatures and 
five removal spells and six pieces of equipment. You know, that's not yeah. a good recipe for success. And it is possible for that to happen if you're not picking creatures appropriately highly enough. Yeah, for sure. It's a, it's a real like duality there. But, you know, in all decks, we're talking about just being mindful of creature counts. A uh, small note as we're talking about aggro. If you have like, you know, the bad enchantment removal like Wither Crown or Mists of Litjara and you play against Red White and especially if you see Cole, the Red White Uncommon, don't play those. Take those out of your deck <laughs> because Wither Crown on a creature when your opponent has Cole, they just sack it and then they just get it back. So don't do that. Right. There's so many interesting effects like that. So Torgrid, the black god, mm -hmm. you know, if you make your opponent discard cards, like you're going to get their stuff. Or if they're trying to sacrifice creatures to things, there's so many complicated interactions like that in the format. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You had that weird like god on god action against Marshall, right? Mm hmm. Yeah. So like your god cared about them sacrificing or discarding stuff. And Marshall had the uh, Bergy, which on the other side is an artifact that lets you discard a card to exile the top two cards of your library. So that sort of like shuts off that card's power in a way. Yeah, it was interesting. Yeah, very, 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 very true. Uh, there are a ton of sweepers in this format, Ben. I believe there are seven cards at Uncommon or Rare that can take care of multiple threats. That makes me very wary of overextending. Like, you know, I'm just constantly thinking... I'm ahead by how far am I ahead? Do I need to play this additional creature right now? Do I need to affect the board more to win? Does it change the clock? Like you got to start asking yourself those questions. I think especially in best of one where sweepers are at their most potent because you like never get to, you know, sideboard against them or play against that known information again. I think being able to sort of read that or anticipate that uh, is going to really pay out in best of one. Yeah, I think Turgrid Shadow is the most backbreaking. That's the three black black Ugh. instant. Each player sacrifices two creatures and has Fertel for two black black. Yeah. That card's absurd. And I will say I got a chance to play with the uh, blue red battle of frost and fire or whatever it's called, the, mm -hmm. the rare saga um, that deals four damage to each non-giant creature on the first clause when it comes down. That card has gone down a bit for me. There's a lot of awkward things with that. You know, if your opponent has their own giants or your opponent has changelings, it mm. frequently didn't do the thing. It was not a five mana wrath with upside, I guess. Oh, okay. All right. That's good to know. Yeah, I haven't seen that card yet, but that, that makes sense based on uh, the composition of a lot of decks I've seen. Another piece of advice here, it's not always free to foretell your instance. You know, sometimes you're going to be giving away information. So for example, if your only play for the turn is draw all the Forsaken, that's the three and a black, three, two, and it's got foretell for one and a black, flash, and when it enters the battlefield, if a creature was dealt damage this turn, it can destroy that creature. You know, sometimes you're going to give away info if you foretell that and you only have up one and a black that can narrow down the range of things that you have for your opponent. Yeah, I mean, it very easily, you know, if you have three mana and you foretell Demon Bolt and then leave up a mountain, not that like your opponent can play around Demon Bolt that much, but you are kind of telegraphing that in a way you're like you are sending that signal of like, hey, this is what I have to do. And your opponent then gets to play appropriately around that. And so you reap the reward you listener reap the reward of having that information out there when your opponent when your opponent does that uh, inappropriately and you should think about the times when you're giving away information by foretelling stuff right like i don't know whether it was inappropriate or not but marshall had a foretold card in game two of one of our matches and i knew he had double of the counter spell uh the saw it coming and i i put him on saw it coming correctly 
And I think won the game because I did that and I played around it appropriately. It's interesting, like we're talking about the information you can give with Drafting Snowlands. Fortel gives information in the game and just the things that you can read from your opponent or the things that you potentially are telling your opponent by doing certain things, I think is something to track. And that's just an additional layer to all of the words that are on the cards in this format. Right. I have not gotten to do much foretelling outside of Cerule's Packmate yet, and I'm looking <laughs> forward to doing that. But uh, talk to me about Fortel Curves. I think it is an insanely cool mechanic. It's great for limited. It mitigates mana screw. It forces you to think about the turns ahead and map out how you're going to use your mana, especially if any of your cards care about double spelling because there's a little overlap there. The thing that I would say about curves is they're sometimes not intuitive. I'd say something like, you know, foretell Doomscar Oracle on two. That's the the 3-2. You can cast it for a single white out of exile and it cares about you casting a second spell like your second spell gains you two life each turn. If you foretell that on two and then you play on turn three, you go Blood Sky Berserker. That's the one in a black 1-1. One, one cares about your second spell being cast, puts two counters on it, gives it menace. Play that on two, curve in two, your single mana foretell Doomscar Oracle. That's pretty great play pattern. Similarly, struggle for Skemfar is almost always, if you've got that, that's the green fight spell with plus one plus one counter on a creature and, and it fights a creature you don't control. That's almost always going to want to be your turn two foretell play because it enables, hey, turn three, I get to play a two drop and fight something. I found that to be a really good thing to... Uh, to use that additional mana on turn three. So, you know, just thinking about your curve out, thinking about maximizing mana, thinking about how you're going to play out your your turns. It's it's just a really cool mechanic. Yeah, I am looking forward to exploring it more. Um, last point here before we dive into some specific cards. The format feels grindy to me. Two for ones are super valuable, and it's why we have Behold the Multiverse and Packmate next to Demon Bolt in our top three commons. And I think you want to be aware of other ways to get value. Skull Raid has skyrocketed in our pick orders. Um, that's the, the Mind Rot variant that lets you then draw cards if your opponent has less than two cards in their hand. Draugr Recruiter, that's the thing that can return a creature from your graveyard to your hand if you boast it. We talked about Tiskiri Firewalker, Horizon Seeker. These cards that let you get multiple cards of value or threaten to get multiple cards of value, I think should be high picks. Yeah, my games have frequently played out. I'm almost dead at like three life and then I'm stable and have like six cards in my hand and the opponent <laughs> has none. <laughs> yeah, and I'm just praying that they don't have a way to push through the last few points of damage. Yeah. So moving on to some hard to evaluate cards that we talked about, you know, maybe that we weren't sure of. Divine Gambit's been a pretty hot one. That's the white, white sorcery, exile target artifact, creature or enchantment an opponent controls. And that player may put a permanent card from their hand on the battlefield. I think this card is just good. It's a it's a fairly high pick. You know, it's not insane. But one of it's fine. You just have to make sure you wait until your opponent has, you know, maybe one or two cards left in hand and maybe they get to put something on the battlefield. But if you're killing something that is a gigantic problem for you, whether it's a creature, an artifact or an enchantment, you're going to be happy you have Divine Gambit in your deck. Yeah, I am dubious of this still. I'm still in the non-believer camp, but both you and Alex feel pretty confident that this is a good card. So I am moving it up in my pick order, despite my gut feeling about it i have seen it cast from my opponent a couple times and i have not been impressed by it um but maybe that's just largely because i'm playing terrible creatures i don't know um but uh but yeah i'm, I'm gonna move this up so g give me a sort of framework here are you taking this over bound in gold no worse worse than bound in gold but i think not that much worse than bound in gold so you're gonna take it over the deal five to a tapped creature yes if i weren't caring about foretell huh okay 
All right, I'm going to keep my eye out for this card for sure. Next up, we're talking about the runes. That's the cycle of cantripping auras at uncommon and runed crown, which is the equipment that can search up a rune and attach it to it. You know, I really want to get behind this, but it is a tough sell to have both your payoff and enablers at uncommon. I have felt like, you know, I've packed one, picked one crown at least once before because I'm like, oh, it's a flexible pick. It's colorless. It's got value down the road if I want to see runes. But if you don't, end up getting runes and runes often don't feel like the right picks out of packs a lot of times if you don't get the runes it just ends up on the sidelines and so it's not actually that like colorless first pick that's going to make your deck 100 of the time there's just a lot of setup for it yeah i don't have a sense of where to pick the runes because yeah. there's been frequently a lot of times my opponents have played the green rune or the blue rune and i thought uh, oh, that's really good for them yeah you know but i i have not ended up with a lot of runes in my deck partially because i think i have a fairly low creature count most of the time, but I, I'm still got my eye on where to pick runes. Next up is Frostpire Arcanist. This is four and a blue for a two five giant wizard, and it costs one less to cast if you control a giant or a wizard. And when it enters the battlefield, you get to search your library for an instant or sorcery card with the same name as a card in your graveyard, reveal it, put it into your hand, then shuffle your library. Frequently, the cards that have been gotten the most with this are Demon Bolt and Squash. And if that's the case, this card is outstanding. You know, it's it's difficult to attack into, and that amount of value is real strong. This card is also incredible in blue-white. That's where I've played it. I've played it twice in blue-white. Grabbing another Iron Verdict, grabbing another Behold the Multiverse, even grabbing another Saw It Coming has felt really good. Yeah, I think it's just a good card, and you should move it up in your pick order. Even if you don't have the doubles yet, you're likely to be able to pick them up. Raven Form is uh, another card we want to talk about here is a, a hard to evaluate card. This is the, the two and a blue sorcery exile, a creature or artifact that has been relevant. Uh, and its controller puts a one, one flying bird token into play. I, where are you at on this card? I think I'm looking to play one in a blue deck. It's been good. Every time my opponents have cast it, I have cursed internally, but I don't think you have, <laughs> I don't think you want to have multiples of it yeah i am i have not experienced that and again maybe i'm just not playing good creatures but i have felt <laughs> like raven form from my opponent has been embarrassing a lot of the time like the one one bird has been relevant and i would say i want access to one but i am not looking to main deck it i'm looking to have access to it out of the sideboard yeah i think i want exactly one copy but interesting but i think it's just playable but it's certainly not a premium card and not even close to the top blue commons no 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 no. and you don't want to load up on them at all all right so some overperformers. we've been talking about them horizon seekers first up that's the two and a green three two with boast for one and a green best thing this can do is in a snow deck if you didn't quite get there on the snow payoffs but you have snow basics you know the fact that this gets an attack probably trades for something and gets you a snow land makes this a good card yeah we, we haven't talked about this but like you know four feels like the magic number in the set um and uh, that's rare that stuff is like four four has four power has four toughness whatever deals four. that's why demon bolt is so good three twos are running around a lot like it's really hard even on the draw horizon seeker on three into attack boast it's so great, great, especially with Fortel, because like, you know, you boast it, you put two mana into it, you search up your fourth land, play your land for the turn, and then you have something to do with two mana. And then it's just like very likely to trade. It feels like a thing that you have to get off the battlefield. And if it doesn't, great. Yeah, just keep that value rolling. Next up, we've got Snow Basics and Snow Duels. We've sung their praises, but just want to reiterate, you need to pick these fairly highly if you're going to get it in the snow decks to send good signals to your neighbor. Yeah. Next up, uh, Mr. Plow himself, Andrew Beckstrom, I think is responsible for getting this combo on our list here. Giant Ox and Colossal Plow. Is this real? 
yeah, there are enough people telling me that this is real that I think I'm just going to trust them at this point. So Giant Ox is the O6 that can crew things equal to its toughness. And Colossal Plow is the vehicle that's a 6-3 and has crew 6. So conveniently, the Ox can crew the Plow. Cute, cute. And that's all I thought it was, was cute. But it actually turns out it's pretty powerful. So when the Plow attacks... You get to add white, 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 and you gain three. So you can frequently double spell then the turn that you attack with the Colossal Plow. So I think all told, it's pretty powerful if you assemble the combo. Yeah, I think I'm going to be looking to take Plow. Like I, I think I would not be mad to take Plow, pack one, pick one at this point. Just to try it out? Yeah, we'll just try it out. But also, like you know you're going to get Oxes. Like, the thing that's hard to get is the Plow. And that feels like really good. Alex has sung its praises in Blue White Fortel, which makes sense to me as well. It's like it's really good in a control shell, I would imagine. Right. And also, the Ox just can do that with any vehicle. So you right. can also do that with Raider's Carve or mm-hmm. whatever it's called. The three mana four four with crew three and whenever it attacks, you look at the top card of your library and if it was a land, you get to put it onto the battlefield. That happened to me too in my matches with Andrew and that was very impressive. Yeah. Next up, we want to talk about the cycle of these like kicker equipment or the equipment that you can pay additional costs to attach it to a, a creature token that it makes. I haven't seen the white one, but I have liked the rest of the cycle quite a bit. Yeah, Elven Bow and Dwarven Hammer are the two most impressive ones to me. Elven Bow is the green. So you pay two and a green, you get a two, three reach, and then you have a reach equipment laying around that's plus one, plus two. That's been very good defensively in green decks for me. And Dwarven Hammer, I think, is absurd in the red aggressive decks. It's five mana to make a five one trample. And then you have an equipment that just gives plus three, plus oh, and trample. That's so hard to stop as somebody that's trying to be a defensive deck. Yeah, I also want to throw a giant's amulet in, into the fold here, the the single blue equipment, but it's really just a five mana, four, five hex proof as long as it's untapped. That's just like a good card period and it dies into a, a good equipment too. Yeah, as well. And also it's super backbreaking against Ice Hide Pillar. Oh yeah, because you can't tap the thing it's equipped to. Right, I've run into that multiple times already for me and my opponents. Oof, yeah, yeah, for sure. So yeah, those equipments are very good. Be on the lookout. I do think the white is the worst of the bunch by quite a bit just because it's so expensive and the white decks typically want to be low to the ground. And it's like the least, like it doesn't give flying, right? It would be better if it like made a 4-4 token and then the equipment granted flying, but like it just leaves behind this like three mana equip plus two plus one, whereas the others, they're granting reach or trample or hexproof, you know? Right. Next up, Avalanche Caller. This card is absurd. I was way wrong on this card. Uh, it's one in a blue, one, three. You can pay two target snow land you control becomes a four, four elemental creature with hexproof and haste until end of turn. It's still a land. This is one of the best reasons to draft snow. And I thought it would be the other way around. I thought it would be something you'd want to pick up late, but it's so powerful. You can activate it the turn it comes down, which is nuts. And also, if you, you know, whatever, draw it on turn six and you play it, you're threatening to block with a 4-4. You can just leave mana up and then take advantage of your opponent not wanting to attack into your 4-4 snow lands and use your mana for other things. Threat of activation is super real on this card. If you thought 4-4 was big, imagine having this and Narfi in play. Narfi makes your snow creatures get plus one plus one, so your snow lands are now 5-5s. Yeah, crazy. Uh, I'm now a Berg Strider believer, I think. Perhaps not as hot on this card as everybody is, but uh, definitely seeing it from Marshall and LSV in the showdown made me feel like, okay, this card is real. This is the four and a blue, four, four snow creature, giant wizard. When it ATVs, you tap target artifact or creature and opponent controls. But if you spent snow mana to cast this, it stays tapped uh, for the next turn. That's a pretty big tempo hit. 
Yep, card's been impressive. Next up is Glimpse the Cosmos. This card is nuts if you can turn it on. It's one in a blue sorcery. Look at the top three, put one in your hand and the rest on the bottom of your library in any order. And then as long as you control a giant, you can flash it back for a single blue and do it again. So that's essentially three mana you've invested to look at six cards and take two of them. It's really, really, really powerful. So the floor on this card is really bad, right? Sorcery speed anticipate is not good. So how many like giants or changelings do you need before you're happy to run this card? Two. Wow. I mean, the upside when it gets there is obnoxious and it just sits in the graveyard waiting for you to get that at any point in the game. Like if if you think about three as a splash, you'd be happy with three sources for a splash, right? Yes, but but I but like, you know, with the, the things that a splash asks of you in terms of like, you know, sometimes this is going to fail. So is the power level there? And I'm not sure the power is here, but like, but maybe it is. I, I'm taking behold over this every time. Uh, not once you're dedicated giants changelings, I don't think. OK, so how many do you have before this is a pick over behold? Five or six, maybe. OK, I think cards really good. I, I definitely see the power there. I'm just trying to figure out like what the thresholds are, you know? Sure, sure, sure. We talked about Skull Raid being great. That's the discard spell. I'm going to let you talk about Basalt Ravager. Basalt Ravager is insane. So this is three and a red, four, two. When it enters the battlefield, it deals X damage to any target, not just creatures, where X is the greatest number of creatures you control that have a creature type in common. So, you know, it looks like this would want to go in blue, red giants, but it just goes anywhere, right? If you're in red, white, you're going to have a bunch of dwarves running around. It's almost best everywhere other than red blue if you're red black you're going to have a ton of berserkers running around if you're red green you might have trolls running around but you're going to get the changelings from green Mm -hmm. i've splashed this in a black green elves deck it does so much work everything has like two types basically so it's not hard to find overlap there i think you know you asked in our uh, prep meeting the other day what the best uncommon is i think it's this it might be this it might be binding of the old gods as well yeah i think that's up there too but Rat Ravager is really, really strong. I haven't cast many of these yet, but Runamuck is the talk of the town in the aggro decks. Uh, one on a red, plus three, plus three, and trample to an attacking creature at instant speed. Um, I, I think it's quite good. Yes, it's better in aggro decks than some of the clunkier removal spells because it allows you to attack. It enables attacks for your stuff. It pushes damage. Your opponent's forced to block. If they don't block, great. They're still going to run into Runamuck in future turns. You have to make sure you're the beatdown, but if you are, Runamuck's a very powerful card. Yeah, there's so many times when your red opponent is a attacking that this is the card you have to think about and it's so hard to play around boreal outrider we've talked about very powerful and you do not need to be heavy snow that's the tuna green three two and if you spent snow mana that lines up with the color that your creature is the creature enters with a plus one plus one counter on it you got to talk about the next card too ben oh jasper a sentinel mox <laughs> emerald with types baby yeah so this is green mm. for a one two reach tap tap and untap creature you control add one mana of any color so this is not insane or anything but it is playable and i would not have thought that going into the start of the format so you really want to care about elves ideally and you need to have a good curve so that you can reliably tap it for mana so frequently it's going to slot into black green deck that wants to splash but when i had that and i cared about elves and i had a good curve and i wanted to splash it was definitely a playable card in my deck and gave me some very 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 strong starts so keep your eye out I, i don't think you're playing it often but when you do and you put it in the right deck. I think it can do some serious work. Yeah. I think Changelings, especially Masked Vandal, that's the one on a green 1-3 that you can exile a creature card to blow up an artifact or enchantment. I think all Changeling types just like bump up. Like the, you know, the, um, I forget the name of it, but the two mana in green that 
puts a counter on something. Obviously, Mist Walker in blue, the one for Flyer, is very, very good. Just like lining up with types or being flexible with types has has mattered for sure. Yes. Next up, Zavella Ice Shaper. This is my boy, Snowlos as it's been affectionately referred to. One red, green, two, four, and you can pay three tap, make a, an icy mana lith with tap, add one mana of any color, which is going to be snow mana. And then you can pay six red, green, tap, look at the top four cards of your library and cast a spell from among them without paying its mana cost. So you can do that at instant speed on your opponent's turn. They don't know whether or not they're supposed to attack into Svella. Basically, once you get eight mana, you just activate Svella over and over until your opponent concedes, and it's awesome. And doesn't necessarily need to go into a snow deck. It's just a very powerful card on its own. Right. Yeah. You just play it where you can cast it. Like it, it, it being snow and it creating the snow manolith or whatever. All of that is just like pure upside, I guess. But it's just great in any deck where you can have a, a green and a red source. I actually think that might be the best uncommon. I forgot about that. I know you think that. I'm not quite there. (laughs) Disdainful Stroke, one in a blue counter target spell with CMC four or greater is quite main deckable in this format thanks to Fortel. You know, everyone's playing these expensive spells that you're getting a cost reduction, but even if you're casting something off of its Fortel cost, it still has its normal CMC. So that means there's a lot of four, five, six drops floating around more than normal. Yeah, I've gotten got by Disdainful Stroke already. Master Scald has been really sweet as well. Uh, took advantage of this in the old team draft as well. So this is four and a white for a four, four. And when it ETBs, you can exile a creature from your graveyard. If you do, you can return an artifact or an enchantment from your graveyard to your hand. So in the team draft, I had a uh, fall of the imposter, which is the green, white uncommon saga and binding of the old gods, the green, black uncommon saga, both of which kill a creature on the opponent's side. And then was able to rebuy those with master scald was pretty, pretty powerful. Yeah. And like we said, four feels like the magic number here. And so a five mana four, four isn't that bad. <laughs> no, it is definitely not. Speaking of, we got to talk about these just like large bodies. Craven Hulk, four mana, four, four in red is huge. Grizzled Outrider, five mana, five, five in green is huger. And Ravenous Lindworm, six mana, six, six in green is hugest. Those cards are so big. Like Grizzled Outrider, when it hits the battlefield, I am terrified. Yeah, I had that happen to me yesterday for the first time. I was like, oh, God, what am I going to do? Yeah, ravenous linworm, too. They are keyword big, and I think they do work. Yeah. So like, you know, again, we're talking about the commons not mattering or whatever, but that those cards are are still just they've, they've been impressive. Yep. Last one here. I'll let you take this. Seize the spoils. This is Theros Beyond Death in one card, baby. Two in a red as an additional cost to cast, discard a card, draw two, make a treasure token. This is Thrill of Possibility plus Traveler's Amulet in one card. And those were the things that enabled the like just draft bombs and be able to dig towards them, be able to help cast them. I'm, I'm kind of a Seize the Spoils truther right now. I had the jankiest snow deck yesterday with two copies of Seize the Spoils as like sort of some fixing for some really questionable mana. And I was frequently able to discard Narfi and then rebuy Narfi. With the snow mana, it was it was tight. I love that. Yeah, I think I think Seas is a little bit of a sleeper right now. All right, moving on to some underperformers. First up is God's Hall Guardian. This is five and a white for the three six Vigilance and has Fertel for three and a white. And this just did not get there. There were a lot of people that were saying, you know, stats line up super well, that sort of thing. This card's clunky, and I think I'm hoping generally to not include it. Yeah, I think that's right. It, it's Got a home, I think, in the Fortel decks just because it does play offense and defense well. But there, you know, I was saying like, oh, there's not a lot of ways to answer it. But there kind of are, especially if like someone's playing like bind the monster or whatever, just like deal three and now tap it and it's done type deal. Like there there are ways to answer it for sure. Yep. 
Augury Raven also on the list. This is good. It's a good card. You know, the three and a blue, three, three flyer. I can, that's crazy. Phantom Mantra with Upside is just good. Like, it's not, it's not nuts, though. I mean, it's, it's a problem sometimes, and you're going to play it always in your blue decks. But I don't think it pulls you into blue. You are on Mistwalker over Raven right now. Yes, by a significant margin, I think. Mistwalker blanks Augury Raven, which is just awesome. Mm-hmm. Mistwalker blocks everything. It's got the four toughness. It blocks your opponent's Shrulf's Packmate. It just does so many things and then late in the game closes out the game just as well as an Augury Raven would. The, the only thing that I have not liked about the Mistwalker in that sense, and I agree it's a great blocker, is that it doesn't tussle. Like you have to have mana f- to make it tussle with the uh, the 3-2 boasters, the Firewalker and the Horizon Seeker. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. So I've, I felt that a little bit, but I agree. I'm, I'm with you on Mistwalker over Raven. Wither Crown also on this list. This card is embarrassingly bad. You should be hoping to never put it in your deck. One in a black enchantment aura, enchant creature, enchant creature has base power zero and has at the beginning of your upkeep, you lose one life unless you sacrifice this creature. Maybe if you're a very defensive deck and your curve is atrocious, like you could think about putting this card in your deck. But other than that, please leave it in the sideboard. So you got to talk about this because I've been just sort of moving past this on stream a lot. Just like, yeah, this card is not good. Let's not play it. And getting a lot of questions about why. Can, can I think we had to dig a little deeper just to let folks know like why this card doesn't matter. Wither Crown? Yeah, because I think it's instinctive for you and I, but I don't think it's instinctive for some people out there. If you're aggressive, you're still going to be attacking into the card. So if your opponent has a 3-3, then they're still going to have an 0-3 that they can pay one life to potentially blank two damage from you attacking a turn. Or heaven forbid, it's a 4-4 or a 5-5 and they're left with a 1-4 or a 1-5 or something because it had a counter on it. There's so many ways that they they can mitigate life loss by leaving the creature around and it doesn't stop creatures with activated abilities and ultimately it's going to give them a chump block to save like six or seven points of damage against a large monster. I don't know. There's just too many scenarios where the opponent can get value after you put Wither Crown on their creature. Yeah. Next up, Hailstorm Valkyrie. This is really like, again, this is another, this is a payoff for taking all the snow lands and no one else should want it. This is three and a black for a two, two flying trample at uncommon. And you can pay snow, snow to give it plus two, plus two until end of turn. Now, have I nugged my opponent for eight with this on multiple turns? Absolutely because I'm taking <laughs> Snowlands highly. But this is a this is payoff, right? You are taking Snowlands over this and like hoping this wheels because like the fail case of four mana two two flying trample is quite bad. Right. This is a reward for drafting snow. And I think worse than Ice Hydro also just interesting to note. Yep. Priest of the Haunted Edge, speaking of rewards and not reasons, you have to have, you know, eight to ten Snowlands before you're happy with Priest of the Haunted Edge. It's one in a black, oh four tap, sacrifice it to give target creature minus X minus X equal to the number of Snowlands you control only at sorcery speed. Again, this is another reward for taking Snowlands aggressively and nobody else should want this. Yeah, and this has felt worse to me, even as like a snow payoff, like you're hoping to wheel these really, right? You're hoping you're taking a Snowland over this every time. You hope these wheel because no one else should want them. And even then, it being sorcery speed, like even if it was just only on your turn, the fact that you can't do anything in combat with it, obviously, if you could block sack, it would be way better. Like it's just a little clunky. Frost Augur is another one that's gone way down. This is not a great card in snow. The body is just too inconsequential. It's the blue mana for the one, two. You can pay snow, tap, activate. Look at the top card of your library. If it's a snow permanent, you can put it into your hand. Or if it's a snow card, not snow permanent, excuse me. Um, but the body's just too inconsequential and you don't end up with enough snow stuff in your deck that it's reliably drawing you a card. Even as us, though I will say I did, Ben, <laughs> the other day, 
I got all eight Snowlands out of pack one. Wow. Then I got then I got the Kraken pack two pick two. So I got to take that. And I will say once I ended up with 27 snow cards, Frost Augur was basically drawing me a card every turn. All right. That that feels pretty good. You can get there. But again, like that kind of deck, like Ryan Sachs's mono white 13 land deck, these like 27 snow card decks. Those are not these are week one anomalies. These are not going to happen as the, the format shakes out. Yeah. Last underperformer here is the uncommon color pair land cycle where you can sacrifice them for a certain ability. Mm-hmm. I think they're not not all created equal, but they are definitely firmly in the, you know, nice to pick up, but you're not taking them highly and you're hoping they wheel in some cases when you're in the color pair. I just have not felt the need to go after them aggressively. Right. None of them are pulls into the color pairs as we pegged, right? None of them we had as reasons to do things. They're very nice rewards. But again, as Ben said, that these are cards you're hoping once you're settled in the color pair that you get to get them late. And I think that's been shaking out appropriately. Yep. But they are when you do get them powerful it's an odd sense like yeah you don't they like the power level in your deck with where you pick them is pretty disparate i think but when they're on the battlefield they do have a big impact on the game sometimes yeah especially when they're hiding among some snowlands. so we normally re-rank the top commons in each color at the end of these first week episodes and i don't think we feel super strongly about doing that this time just because it's so 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 contextual so we're gonna go over the ones that we feel pretty confident on and then next week when we dive into looking at where all the commons belong we'll give some more context i think that's more helpful but for white bound in gold is number one that's the the two and a white pacifism effect enchanted creature can't attack block use activated abilities etc yeah and the fact that it goes on permanence is relevant like you can put it on a vehicle so it shuts it down i also had a situation against marshall where i thought about putting it on his certland frost pyre the pyroclasm land so this shuts down those abilities on lands as well so this card is is quite flexible Ooh, that's spicy yeah and then past that you know it really gets contextual quickly Iron Verdict's very good. That's the deal five at instant speed with Vertel. Doomscar Oracle is the three two with Vertel for a white. When you cast your second spell each turn, you gain two life. But I think Bound and Gold is the only super solid white common. Yeah. Blue, which we have as the best color, um, and that's largely off the back of these top three commons being really good. Behold the Multiverse one, that's the scry two, draw two for four mana, but it has Vertel one and a blue. And we've talked about Mistwalker at two and Augury Raven at three. Yeah, feel very strongly about Behold and Mistwalker 1 and 2. And then I think there's a, a, a gap. And I don't think you're necessarily playing Augur Raven always all the time or picking it super highly. I would be shocked if you left Augur Raven on the sidelines in a blue deck, right? Yeah, that's probably true. Yeah. All right, moving on to black. Feed the Serpent number 1. That's 2 black, black, instant, exile, target, creature, or planeswalker. Card's good, but I don't think it's as busted as everyone thinks. There's just way more efficient ways to deal with threats. It's a little... It's bordering on the clunky side, I guess is what I would say. It's a it's a good card. You're always going to play it, but I don't think it's as nuts as the rest of the world thinks. Yeah, I, I'm I think I'm a little less on the Ben and Alex hot take about Feed the Serpent being clunky ish. Like it's still good. You're still you like if you're on a black deck and you don't end up with a feed, I think you're upset or you're going to. Oh, you, for sure. You know, so I, I think like it does get stuff dead, but I think a lo- this is largely off the back of a lot of stuff. A lot of the creatures aren't things that you're like, I want to kill that with this four mana removal spell. Like, you know, if you're trying to nab a Horizon Seeker or a scary Firewalker with this, which are things you need to get off the battlefield, like that does feel bad. There's also some sort of a sense of, do you want three Feed the Serpents? Like, I don't know, two feels kind of like the right number, one to two. I agree, one to two. 
And then also, like if your if your plan is trading one for one, and your opponents have Behold the Multiverses and Sorolf's Packmates, and you don't have those type of cards, you're just going to lose the card advantage battle. Which is why we have potentially here a number two is Skull Raid. Yeah, three and a black uh, target opponent discards two cards. If they can't, you draw cards equal to the cards they can't discard. The card's been super impressive. I don't know if it's the number two best black common. I think that's where I'm picking it right now. Death Knell Berserker and Elder Fang Disciple as the two drops have also impressed me. And you're pretty hot on Jarl as yeah, well. Yeah, Jarl the Forsaken, the, the Flash 3-2. Just like it playing well with all the other Fortel stuff at instant speed is a real boon for this card. But also just, you know, it also plays well with Elder Fang Disciple dealing a damage to something and then you flash this in to finish it off. Like, I think it's just super flexible. Moving on to red, Demon Bolt 1 and Frostbite 2, I think we feel super strongly about and past that. Again, I think it gets pretty contextual. Yeah, I'm still on, we've got Squash maybe. I'm on Firewalker still at number three, just based on it being that sort of like two for one boasty engine. But, you know, again, contextual. And then moving on to green, Cerule's Packmate, clear number one. Boy, was I wrong about that. That hot take did not pan out. <laughs> um, and then Ice Hide Troll is two for me, I think. Uh, the card has just been a house, assuming you can enable it. I don't think you're supposed to like windmill slam ice hide trolls, you know, early in pack one. Mm-hmm. But when you get the snow deck and you get ice hide troll, it performs at a very high level. Yeah, I think I'm just now feeling like, look, I'm not going to get the ice hide trolls in pack one because I'm not I'm taking land, snow lands over it. Um, and then I know that other people are going to overvalue it and think that it's a reason to get into snow or whatever, and that it's going to be easy to enable. But then I know I'm going to get them late in pack three once I snap up the snow lands. But so I, I don't know where I have troll in this order. Like maybe I have glittering frost ahead of it. I don't know. But yeah, the, the raw power of Packmate just really shines here. So we'll dive into that more in a lot more depth next week where we talk about, you know, the color pairs, what the color pairs want to do and how the common slot into those color pairs. So looking forward to that episode. Yeah, absolutely. All right. That was a bunch and there's going to be more to come. Great place to wrap up the episode. Thank you as always to Salty Pretzels for our intro and outro music. Make sure you give it a listen. Thank you to Channel Fireball for sponsoring this podcast. If you're heading over to CFB for any and all purchases, signing up for CFB Pro for that sweet written content that me, Ben, and Alex are pumping out each and every week, please use the code LOL when you check out to let them know that we sent you there. You can also check us out streaming. I'm at twitch.tv slash Lord Tupperware. Ben is at twitch.tv slash Mr. Metronome, both under those same usernames on Twitter, and you can tweet at the podcast at Lords of Limited. If you've got any feedback about the show or any questions, shoot us an email at lordsoflimited at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll catch you next week for another episode of Lords of Limited. Thanks, everybody. See you later. What are you humming about? Sorry, that was just like a little vocal like warm up thing that I did. Oh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Hacking up a lung and you're all professionally. Hmm. Uh Uh-huh.